Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Yes Sir, Hey Chair, your weekly podcast where we try and dissect education news and ideas from different perspectives, and hopefully with a little bit of English and Singaporean humor. Now, if you are listening to us for the first time, uh, and because somebody recommended you to listen to us, we would appreciate it a lot if you could share this link to someone whom you know would might benefit from this. Uh, and that would help us quite a fair bit. So, we are in our ninth episode. Dennis, how are you? How's your week been? Well, yeah, ninth episode. Actually, Mark, it's been a good week. A couple of things have run my way. I've managed to get my driving licence through thanks to you doing some research. So, I don't have to retest uh, again. Might have taken me 10 times to pass it. I'm not a great driver. I've also been able to sort out a bit of arthritis that I'm beginning to develop from being back in Blighty, um, which is good. Never experienced anything in Singapore because it was nice and warm and humid. And I'm looking forward um, to Spurs winning this weekend. <laughs> well, not only winning this weekend, you also have a new... You have a new manager, don't you? Yeah, well, uh, can't be worse than what we've had. Um, what was it? Uh, one shot on target in two games. <laughs> well, I, I, could, I could have been played. I could have been. In fact, I expected Nuno to give me a call. Like, yeah, know, but I, I at think least I'd have a bit of passion. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I said, uh, I mean, I did. You no, know, we did say that this podcast is humorous, not delusional. But thanks for sharing yeah. that. Uh, yeah, okay. So, uh, I mean, hopefully, Spurs. Uh, apparently, I was reading the headlines. Harry Kane seems quite happy that he's an elite coach like Conte is coming in. So maybe he might just get off his ass and become a little bit more of a passionate player. Well, the, the you know we're, we're going to be talking about assessments. So I think there'll be a lot of people assessing uh, Spurs' performance. Um, <laughs> okay. In the coming match. So uh, well, I'm, I'm Italian. So uh, I, I do think uh, Antonio will... Uh, he, he will... Uh, he would do the necessary. Okay. Well, not a perfect segue, but uh, I mean, there was a good attempt in try, uh, you know, talking about passion and assessment. Uh, but yes, today's episode is really about uh, talking about the future of assessment. Uh, and I think let's start off with uh, your thoughts. You know, we have lived in, you have lived in Singapore for quite a number of years. And you do know that if there's one thing that Singapore is passionate about is our examinations. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, look, um, to be honest about it, um, Singapore should be very proud of that fact because it has established it's part of the data. The fact that Singaporean students do so well, obviously we know in maths and science, but they also do well now in problem solving and creativity. You've got a national literacy rate of, I think, about 97%. So um, there's nothing wrong in... Um, having a rigorous examination system. And um, one could argue um, that Singapore is the best system in the world. So what's wrong with that? Okay. So, okay, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, what I wanted to preface this discussion uh, was with a newspaper article. Uh, by the time I think people listen to this, is the national exams uh, or most exams in Singapore, year-end examinations will be over. Uh, but what was interesting was because of COVID, uh, there was a call uh, for exams to be reviewed and the Straits Times, which is our national newspaper, reported 
Uh, no year-end exams for primary three and four pupils due to COVID-19. Uh, so when looking at this and you know just establishing the fact that we are quite passionate about our examinations, uh, what were your first initial impressions? Was it a good call, bad call? Were you surprised? Were you shocked? Well, not really, um, because it's noticeable that while Singapore is seeking to cons- uh, considering to sorry achieving I scores in public. Um, examinations uh, right across the board um, there there is a recognition that assessment shouldn't simply be based on exam results um, there's I mean I noticed it in Singapore that there was uh, a kind of movement in Singapore that said okay you know we've been very successful a lot of it may have been based on the hard work culture in Singapore and the the so-called pressure that students are put under in the Singapore education system, which we could we could discuss. I actually think a lot of it's quite positive. But there is an increase in emphasis in Singapore on holistic education. That we don't just want students who can get grades in public exams, but also that they develop good aspects of character in the effective domain. So um, I, I totally get that. Well, you know, Singapore is very flexible. It's adaptive. Why would it not do that? Okay. So there's there's lots to, to, to unpack. Uh, but actually what I wanted to really talk about is uh, not whether the decision was right or wrong, uh, but there are two parts to, to this that you talked about. One is the shift in focus to look at a little bit more, for one of a better word, soft skills. We'll put that aside for the time being. Uh, but let's do some crystal ball gazing. Now, what instead of uh, cancelling examinations, uh, you know, uh, and, and what do I mean by cancelling examinations? Like those year-end high stakes, everything counts kind of examinations. What if we found new ways to do our assessment uh, and to check for student learning? Now, what do you think? What then is, in, my, in your opinion, sorry, the future of assessment? Okay. Um, well, I do hope, first of all, and I'm going to stick my neck out here, is yep. that I hope we do keep a traditional type exams. However, what I don't like is an is a traditional I-stake summative exam where you're just assessing students' ability to memorise lots of factual information. We know that you know, memory is fundamental to learning. People need to get stuff into their long-term memory system because that's what builds understanding and understanding is is fundamental to good performance and the development of competence. However, um, it's certainly possible that, and I saw this happening in Singapore, is that the exam format itself can be changed to one where students have a kind of open book type situation. So they have to work under exam conditions because I think that's really important because one thing that worries me today is with the take-home exams. It's open to a lot of plagiarism and a lot of help. Right. I would like to see uh, assessment still having an exam format. And what that means is that they have to do it in some real-life setting. In other words, I'd like to see what's called more authentic assessment, performance-based assessment. Students showing that they have understanding of a particular domain and maybe an understanding across domains. We want students to um, be able not to be um, thinking in silos. We want them to be assessed on real world performance tasks that reflect what goes on you know, in the world of work and to show understanding and to show competence. 
So I do think, first of all, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's an old English saying, isn't it? Do you have that in Singapore? Yeah, yeah. I think most people yeah. understand that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But... So I do think that. Now, if we want to move on to that and say, OK, so that's still... Let, let's... In my opinion, we still need that type of exam format because, you know, at least if if they're under exam conditions and somebody's watching them, et cetera, et cetera, um, unless they're David Blaine, they can't cheat, can they? Okay, so that's that's a okay. So let let's let's rewind that a little bit. Uh, so what you are saying is, when you talk about examination format, you still think that we need to possibly have a, a high stakes year end examination. It's just that the type of questions and the way we deliver it needs to be different. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. We don't. But when I did my O level maths back in the seventeenth uh, century, I think it was. It was a late lab. I think it was the sixteenth century, not yeah, the seventeenth. It, it may well be, mate. Yeah, time time seems to have dragged a little bit. But to be frank, we had to memorize, you know, cosine rule formulas and the various things. And yeah, you know, we don't really want to assess whether someone can memorize a formula. We're interested in is can we apply uh, the subject in real life? Now, I'm going to say something now that's just cr- it's just come through my mind. I was um, talking to some local folk here in Jersey. And what um, some of them are saying to me is that, you know, kids are still learning simultaneous equations, quadratic equations and things like that, um, because it's part of the the GCSE syllabus. But they're not terribly good at real world maths to be able to do mental arithmetic quite quickly and whatever. So I do think that we need to look carefully about um, what we teach because what we do know about assessment mark is that assessment defines what students learn and how they're going to learn it for example um, if you're going to assess lots of recall knowledge then students are going to adopt a very what's called a, a, a surface approach to learning they're just going to memorize lots of stuff and then once the exam's finished and I remember doing this myself. How can I get this information out of my head now? I'll finish the exam so I can put a load more in for the next exam. And then, as we know from core principles of learning, that um, it's going to be rapidly forgotten. So really, you know, that kind of assessment is a bit like having an hamster on a Ferris wheel. Did you ever have an hamster? I did quite a few actually, but actually, no. But okay, so so really, okay, so this is where maybe fundamentally we disagree a little bit. Uh, and my 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 point is, uh, while I think assessments on the whole are required, they are important to uh give us insights to how well the person has learned, or is there standards that the person needs to meet? That's fine. My question is, why do we still Hub or why do we still need high stakes, winner takes all kind of examinations at the end? Would it not make more sense for us to break it up and do more consistent assessment, mini type of assessments rather than have, you know, you, you walk in there, okay, it's all or nothing. You you do it now, you're successful. If you were suffering uh, hangover, maybe because Manchester United just beat your beloved Spurs uh, 3-0 uh, with a pathetic showing, then, you know, the person going to the examination hall is not in his right mind to do it. How is that fair then? Well, first of all, it's very good that you, you've learned that Man United did actually win the game and you still remember it a week later. Maybe you have some emotional tie to that. Uh, OK, yep. yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I don't think we should have 
just one terminal exam after two years or even a year and everything rests on that because many factors can come into play you know students could be um sick on the day um it could be there's something occurring in their lives that is you know is more important at that time than the exam so i wouldn't want to have that so the idea of breaking the assessment up into stages across a duration whether it's a term semester or a year and but also still retaining the authenticity of um the assessment in other words that the student has to perform under some observed conditions so there's no way they're getting uncle chuck saying or uncle den um doing the work or cobbling together stuff on the internet or paying someone on the internet to do the work but that's 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 the whole problem, isn't it? Because that's what most people are now advocating that we should be doing a lot more, for one of a better word, project work. Uh, a lot more, as you said, take home type of assignments. Maybe can you elaborate that a little bit more? Uh, how are take home? What firstly number one? Because I think some people in Singapore who is listening to this are not sure what do you mean when you say take home assignments, uh, or take home assessments. Uh, and essentially, why is that? Uh, uh, what do you, can you just elaborate a, a bit? More? I know you said it, but can you just deepen the part about a thought, uh, authentic assessment a bit more? Yeah, yeah. No, uh, look, um, we know today that in the workplace we need students who have the you know, apart from subject specific knowledge, but the twenty first century competences that we talk about: communication, collaboration teamwork, critical, creative thinking, yeah. metacognitive thinking, those kind of things. Yeah. And we know that these are not things you're going to assess by giving the student a, uh, an essay to write. Okay. I mean, look, um, for example, I mean, there's just, I remember teaching on a number of Master of um, uh, Education programs and Master of Business MBAs. And people were uh, coming to class uh, and saying, well, um, can you help us um, to frame our answers to these assessment questions? And I thought to myself, hold on a minute. Um, shouldn't a person with a master's in business administration be able to do more than write a comparison of Erzberg's theory of motivation with Room's theory of motivation? It should be about how to manage people, right? So I'm all for making the assessment, when we say authentic assessment, that means that we are assessing um, students uh, of whatever age or whatever course on um, the application of knowledge in in real world context. So, um, um, and obviously, um, you can't have somebody in an exam room for for five days. Um, so, the <laughs> idea that they do work uh, on their own is fine, but we're going to have to have assessment criteria and an assessment process that is going to be very time consuming because you can do some of the assessment uh, through observation fine so that's all that that is um, reducing um if you like subjectivity or plagiarism um but you then if they're doing it outside of the classroom to be interviewing individual students to see well uh, what have they contributed to this project um do they actually have an understanding of it do they have the skills that uh, have somehow been applied but not necessarily by them so this is my big worry that while we would like to have more of this performance-based 
continuous assessment, integrating thinking, communication, collaboration, subject knowledge. We want that. Uh, where do we get the time and the resources to do that? More and more teachers are complaining that they're doing more and more work. Remember, we talked about teacher stress, right? Yeah. If they're now got to be doing a much more complex assessment process on a continual basis, interviewing students to check that they actually have developed the types of thinking we want to assess, that they're showing metacognitive capability, that they have actually got the, the range of skills. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a bit like saying we'd like to provide a national health service where everybody all their life can have all the best treatments forever. Um, there is a reality. Um, not everybody can afford a Maserati. Um, some of us have to uh, go on public transport. So um, that, that's the concern I had that have to try to make this more holistic assessment um, and to meet demands of validity and reliability. Yeah, yep. the right thing to do. But what about the time and resources and the funding? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I, I understand that. Uh, and, and thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. Uh, which I think then really uh, comes to the, the... So the issue really comes to the fore uh, when we talk about what you just said, the rules of assessment as part of our pedagogic literacy. Uh, and for those of you who are just joining us for this very first ep uh, episode, uh, you can then uh, go and look back at uh, previous episodes where we talk about pedagogic literacy. Uh, but now when we, we, we are also now expanding the, the concept of pedagogic literacy to include... Uh, assessment as well. Now, would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the big point that we do know is that assessment has many purposes. And um, you're younger than me. I'm not stating the obvious. You don't need to put you know, <laughs> get calculator out. Significantly here. younger. Not, not only younger, yeah. significantly yeah. younger. Yeah. I mean, uh, to me, when I thought about assessment at school, it was just something that it, it was a hoop that we had to jump through. I never saw assessment as contributed to my learning. It just meant that if I got certain grades, I wouldn't have to repeat it again. And if I got the grades I needed to, to you know, to, to move on to the next stage, whether it was educational, like O levels to do A levels or to get into university, that's all I was interested in. But we now know for a lot of research you know in cognitive science and teacher professionalism that um assessment contributes massively to the learning process in fact one could say it's two sides of the same coin that as you learn something and you try to connect the new knowledge to your prior knowledge um, to know whether you've done that successfully you, you need to do some assessment can i now answer a particular question that i couldn't answer can i um do I have a skill that I didn't have prior? And we know that the quality of feedback, you know, from tutors, from yep. peers, but especially from tutors, um, is so fundamental uh, because it then helps to it helps the person to say, oh, yes, I have. I, I do understand it. I, I can display the skill at this level of competence and um, or that I'm missing something. I haven't fully understood it. I haven't made those neural connections in long-term memory that I need a bit more of rehearsal practice with or a bit more deliberate practice with the skills. So it is so fundamental to learning. And that's why when we talk about good teaching, the ability to build good assessment, but not assessment that is just about summative. You've passed, you've failed, 
but an ongoing process of two-way feedback. So when the time comes that the student has to take a test, whether it's in an exam room, um, an open book type exam even, or even some other performance task, that they have actually learned it and can display it um, in that summative situation. Right, right. You know what's scary for me? I think something that uh, you wrote in your book uh, that I just want to read out uh, by David Bao, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, and he said there were several notable studies over the years which have demonstrated that assessment methods and requirements probably have a greater influence on how and what students learn than any other single factor. Uh, can you imagine that? Uh, that? That's quite scary, isn't it? So can you imagine if we have uh, 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 educators or teachers who are maybe not so pedagogically literate, literate when it comes to uh, assessment and examination practices. Can you imagine the, the, the issues that they could be facing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's massive because the students will orientate themselves to the assessment situation. So if, if we're assessing things, if we're assessing knowledge and skills that are not particularly useful in the current um, workplace or life context, then we're, we're kind of wasting our time. We're wasting the students' time. We're wasting teaching time. And students will learn. They will develop. I mean, um, Trigwer and Prosser did a lot of research in this area. And basically, um, they will... If we are setting low expectations where we're giving them a, a, a big focus on pure memory recall and not on demonstrating understanding. And as we know, understanding is the outcome of good thinking, yeah. connecting our prior knowledge and new knowledge. So um, it, it's so important to um, get those objectives um, right, because assessment is about measuring the objectives. So if we want students to, to think critically, then um, assessment tasks must involve students doing analysis, compare and contrast, making inference, interpretations and evaluation, and preferably in a, uh, a real world holistic task. So they're not learning these types of thinking in an abstract way, but as a as a uh, a skill set that's neurologically embedded in their long-term memory so they are getting better and better at doing critical thinking in the domain that they have knowledge. Right. But I think there's a bit of hope because uh, what you mentioned earlier, uh, and I take your point, well, if you want to assess critical thinking, then you have to make sure that it is part of the assessment process. Uh, but I think you also alluded to the fact that, uh, you know, assessment... Uh, it's not just a measurement of learning, but it's also important in supporting the learning process. Can you just maybe help our listeners understand what you mean by that? Well, let's take anything that you you want to learn, right? Yeah. Let's. I mean, even you know whether it's factual knowledge or the most complex knowledge, because at the end of the day, you must have that piece of learning, that type of learning in your long-term memory system. So I'm just going to test you now, Mark, okay? Yeah. Now, in 1966, when I was 14 years of age and you were just a twinkle in your parents' eye, is that correct? <laughs> okay. Okay. So, in 1966, you will know that England, the only time before you say it, that 
We won the World Cup, correct? You know that, correct? Yes, with dubious and goals, but okay. Will, I, I, because I know you, I'm again making a bit of an assessment here. You will probably know that England won the game 4 2. Do you know yep. that? Yep. And you probably know that a a person called um, Jeffers. Yeah, I'll look at that. You see, I, I slipped in a bit of a dummy there. I didn't say it, but you were there. Now then, is here is the question, right? Um, can you name the player who scored first and in what minute? No idea. No idea. Now, you know why? I, I only I only remember Jeff Hurst because he's to date the only player to have scored a hat trick in a World Cup final. To date. Till now, ever since then, nobody has actually repeated that feat. Right. Okay. No one. Yeah. So that's the only, so so that's the unique thing yeah. I remember. But if you ask me who scored first, I think I think it was Martin Peters or something. If I wasn't wrong, but I don't know at what uh, at what minute. I don't even think I got the goal scorer right. Okay, so let's suppose now we're on. Who wants to be a millionaire? Right. Yeah. Probably and, lost a million dollars. And um, there's there's. There's a number of players, four players right there. And yep. you said Martin Pieces. Did you say that? Yep. And you, so let's, let's, I'm just making this up as I go along. Martin Peters, Alan Ball, um, Carl Eins Schnellinger, and Helmut Aller. They're your four choices. One of those is correct. Now, yep. for a million dollars, is Martin Peters your final answer? No, I would say Ellen Ball is my final answer. <laughs> so you change your mind, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, you have not won a million dollars. You have lost your stake. It yeah. was the who scored the Germans who scored first. Yeah, and it was Elmer Allah in it was between the twelfth and the thirtieth thirteenth minute. Now, viewers will be going on their um um application mobile devices checking whether that's yeah, correct right okay and he was about 12 yards out i think right foot shot went in on the left side how do i know that is it because i'm more intelligent than you mark no it's probably because you were there watching the game yes <laughs> and it's still in my long-term memory right? exactly now, so the, the basic point i'm making is that whatever we do with um any learning, it doesn't matter whether it's purely factual knowledge or whether you can solve a, a marketing problem or an engineering problem. Fix a car, let's be honest about it. You know, a, motor, a good motor mechanic should be able to diagnose what's wrong with your car if it's not working, correct? Yep. And the reason they can do that is because they're very lucky, correct? No, it's because they're good at what they do. Yeah, so what makes them good at it? Deliberate practice, experience. Yeah. Yeah, and what have they got in their long-term memory systems? The knowledge, the experience, prior knowledge. Yeah, correct. And those that prior knowledge is neurologically embedded in connected groups of neurons, correct? Okay. So providing those neurons are stable and um, they, they continue to... Um, continue repairing cars they're probably going to retain that capability correct correct unless right. something uh, some accident happens or they lose their memory yeah or are they you know are they going to some kind of psychosis and start 
uh, supporting Arsenal football team as well as not being able to fix a car, right? Oh, well, we just lost half of our listeners then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah. the, the basic point then is that it's it's that co- constant interplay of using your prior knowledge with new knowledge as you're learning new things about any field, whether it's motor vehicle maintenance or psychotherapy or, you know, coaching football and yeah. constantly building that up. So it is embedded nicely in your long-term memory system. And that's why experts get paid so much because they've got so much stuff nicely organized in their long-term memory. So, you know, it's like the engineer going into a plant and um, there's so many parts of machinery uh, in that plant but that expert can say oh i saw this problem in peru i saw it in you know walsall i saw it in singapore it's probably this that they can come to the diagnosis quicker and better and the same is medicine at the end of the day the very best medical practitioners are able to look at the symptoms they've got that knowledge in their head and right away they can eliminate more and more things because as we know that if you have certain symptoms it could be anything from flu to covid to cancer or 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 many other things Uh, but expertise is the ability to um, solve problems particularly complex ones quicker and better and um, it's that c- continuous assessment process of where you are and where you need to be uh, that builds that. So that's that's why assessment and learning are two sides of the same coin. Right, right. Okay. So, so thanks for 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 making that clear. So uh, that's interesting. How that how uh, you know summative assessment is not just matter about checking for student. Uh, competence or ability to retain information but also uh, looking at how it can support their learning so let's let's go back to what we said uh, earlier just now uh, which is the second part that I think is important for us to unpack uh, and that's the one about how we try to assess 21st century competencies so we said if we if we think that's important for example critical thinking or teamwork and collaboration is important then we def- definitely need to include it as part of the assessment outcomes. But what could be some of the potential big challenges or, or issues that we need to think about? Well, the, you know, the big challenges, as many writers have said, it's quite simply that you know, we, we are demanding more quality of the assessment process. We want to be sure because let's, be, let, let's, let's go back to some basics here. When we're assessing somebody, um, we are making a claim to know them in some important way, right? And if we're just assessing whether people have factual knowledge, um, it's fairly easy. We ask them 20 multiple choice questions. And if they answer those multiple choice questions, though I'm incredibly lucky. And if they're that lucky, we would want to employ them anyway, or they actually know the stuff, right? But yeah. if we try to assess metacognition, uh, their ability to communicate, work as teams, um, asking them questions about these things on itself will only assess perhaps a certain level of understanding, but not competence and transfer across different situations in real life work context so quite simply more time would have to be spent in the assessment process i don't think we can get away from that fact so what we have to do is we have to find ways i think to be more efficient in the assessment process what do you mean by more efficient um well look let me give you an example um 
lots of teachers have, have complained and they, they've done this to you and they've done that to me. Oh, I've got so much marking to do and you've got to mark each individual book and in the olden days with the red ink and all that. Now, um, look, students can do more work than what we can do. So I think what we have to build into the instructional strategy is that students do a lot more peer assessing and tutoring. In other words, what we do is we actually teach students how to do assessment. And that's not that difficult because if we've got clear criteria of what is good performance and we've got good examples of different levels of performance, this helps the students, one, to understand what they're being uh, assessed on. So it helps them develop yeah. their own self-assessment capabilities. So a student can say, right, this is good work. Uh, this is the criteria. These are the objectives. I know what the objectives are. I know what poor performance is, average performance, good performance. I can now look at it and say, does my work come up to that standard? Now, if you've got students working collaboratively, looking at each other's work and giving each other feedback, obviously uh, there may be situations where they can't do that and they come to you and they say hey chair right just i'm doing the singaporean bit right yeah uh, you know we've done this we've looked at this this objectives means that and a good facilitator says well hold on uh, you know this uh, this is where facilitation skills and good assessment skills on the part of teachers is important. But to be able to say, ah, but what about this? And then suddenly you open the students go, ha I see, yeah, if we know this and we do that and we do that, then we we understand this or we can do that. So I think the use of um, peer assessment, peer tutoring, self-assessment, carefully managed, and this is where, this is gonna be a key teacher skill, um, you know, in, 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 in assessing these 21st century competencies, to be able to, uh, facilitate this type of assessment um, scenario and to teach these skills and obviously assess these skills with students so that ultimately students are develop the capability uh, to do quite a lot of self-assessment for learning. Now, the big question, uh, Mark, is how much do we rely on um, student assessments? Um, right. Assessment, the summative assessment and I'm going to be honest. I mean, I've looked at the research and yeah, I mean, you, you know, there's, you know, uh, the, the statistics and um, there's lies, you know, and someone says, you know, sort of statistics is a, a kind of can be an eye level of lie, <laughs> lie and, and statistics and whatever. So I'm, I, I'm not overconfident that we should um, rely on students having too much say in the summative assessment. Now I'm making a value judgment, right? But I do want to see students to uh, be encouraged, develop the capability to do the assessment and to particularly for formative assessment. With summative assessment, um, I would want to make sure that there is a strong verification uh, process. In other words, yes, yeah, students can do some assessment, put forward a case, but I think there needs to be an external, it could be the teacher, it could be other teachers um, that validates that because the danger is that students will be biased either to themselves. In fact, what worries me as, as a teacher educator, Mark, and you may have experienced this, you know we observe many teachers. I usually find that those who teach worse when you do the, the reflective practice actually think they're very good. And yeah. equally, those who are doing it well are very critical of themselves. So there has to be a level of external verification with expertise.
Right. Okay. So, uh, before I, I I want to sum up about the impact of technology on this, I just wanted to to just highlight something that you mentioned. You know, the one about getting our students to be a little bit more informed by getting them to be, uh, you know, teach them about how to assess themselves, to do self assessment, to know how far they are behind, and also maybe to then provide peer assessment to their counter, uh, to their fellow peers. Uh, while I see that as an interesting concept, I would think it would not be that easy to do. Although I know you did say that you know it would, it is not that difficult. Uh, but to close up this segment here, what would be one tip or one uh, uh technique that teachers can do who are listening to this and say, okay, if I want to make my students more aware of the concept of self assessment or peer assessment, what is the one thing they can do now? Well, I mean, if I if I just take a quote by Knight, and what he says is this, that the key to the use of assessment as an engine for learning, right, yep. is to allow the formative function to be preeminent, that we, we focus more on formative ass- assessment. And this is achieved by ensuring that each assignment, so when we design our assignments for students, that it contains plenty of opportunities for learners to receive detailed, positive and timely feedback with yeah. lots of advice on how to improve. So we build the assessment, get teachers to build assignments that allow that opportunity for students to learn more effectively and efficiently because the you know the formative assessment, the core principle that assessment is fundamental to learning is actually built into the task. And we know that team-based learning, we know that um, peer assessment, um, peer instruction, the Mazur technique of students um, being involved in answering questions, sharing their answers with others, does enhance learning. And also it makes the learning process, I think, and the assessment process more intrinsically motivating. So that would be the thing that I would say is, is very significant to to design the assignments and the instructional strategy so that assessment is seamlessly integrated into the instructional strategy. That would be the summative point. Okay. okay. <laughs> <If> you like. <laughs> <In a> formal... <laughs> okay. Then? Yeah. Okay. So that's a good point. Okay. So uh, what about then? So so let's, let's, let's wrap up this segment by maybe just talking a little bit about technology what role does technology play in this as we talk about the future of assessment uh and i and i and i'm referring to going beyond taking assessments high state assessments using computers well um certainly what it can do it can massively um make many aspects of the assessment much more efficient because uh, as we know, we've talked about technology tools every week and you you expertise to me in this area i've assessed that evaluated it right and what we know now is that tools like Socrative, who it, it is great for providing a means for very quick detailed assessment so yeah. technology certainly can support assessment for as and of learning and providing real-time assessment information um you know we talk about learning analytics right i mean let, let's simplify this that you know learning analytics is about getting more data that may be useful for 
groups of learners, but also for personalized learning. And that's what the technology can do is I remember the old days of marking um, multiple choice questions with a, you know, with a, you know, uh, doing it by hand. I mean, technology can crunch up the information. So what it can do is process the information and provide um, very specific feedback to students. So if we can use these technology tools, it can certainly take away a lot of the legwork that we used to do. And hopefully that frees up a bit more time to um, to spend on the more um, holistic, more uh, assessment of more complex um, performance tasks. So yeah. you see, it, it has a very significant role. To the extent to which, who knows, that uh, it may well be we have technology tools that can kind of capture uh, aspects of reality that it can't capture now and do that kind of assessment. I mean, we know in radiography now that kind of, um, you know, good technology tools in, in um, artificial intelligence and that kind of thing can actually look at very complex data and um, make as good as or better decisions than the, you know, the experienced professional. But technology at the moment is still algorithmic in the sense that it can only process what's programmed into it. So as massive benefits, um, could it really assess um, complex behavior over time? Um, there's work being done on that. And some writers think yes, and some think that's still a long way away. So we're, we're working in a bit of a transition zone certainly use the technology to assess um, factual knowledge, certainly. And I think we can assess lots of critical thinking uh, um, and uh, simulations, again, provide opportunities to to make the assessment certainly uh, more efficient as well. Right. I think there's another, that's another big meaty area that we can talk about maybe in the next episode uh, or uh, future episodes. But I also think that uh, technology provides the opportunity for us to leverage a little bit on uh, learning analytics. And again, I don't think we want to go and uh, go into that topic now because that in alone probably might take five podcast episodes for us to, to break Absolutely. that down. Yeah, but uh, maybe just your quick thoughts on, on uh, learning analytics uh, as we start to hear about, uh, uh, you know, the importance of learning analytics in teaching and learning. Maybe a quick word from you on that. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw in a word of caution, Mark, because... Yeah. A lot of people, I think, it's a bit like, remember if we go back years, and you were alive at the time when e-learning, <laughs> e-learning started. I remember coming to Singapore and the, you know, on everybody's tongue, oh, we, the virtual college, the virtual in- environment, the, as though technology was going to be the next best thing since sliced bread. And about um, 15 years later, um, Zemsky, I think it was 2004, did a big bit of research and referred to technology in education as a thwarted innovation and that's because it was overhyped and I have certain worries or concerns with learning analytics one is that it it's it can lead to definitions of the situation. Uh, we look at big data and we look at students and say, oh, this student is at risk or this student isn't competent. Now, look, I took my O-level maths exam in 1968. I got a grade nine um, in the Oxford uh, one to nine band, which means that my Jack Russell dog, I think I mentioned this before, but it's worth bringing it up, retention and rehearsal practice. Um, 
if my Jack Russell dog, who's 18 years of age, still alive, was alive last week. And um, he, he would have fared no worse. Um, however, uh, a year later, I, I go up six grades. So um, <laughs> the learning analytics at that time in 68 would have been... <laughs> I'm a bit of a dunce at best, so and <laughs> lead to lots of uh, lots of data, but not really. Okay, will it will it be beneficial to some students, but it could be detrimental to others. So, and it will create more work for teachers potentially as well. Right. But yeah, it can okay. contribute to the assessment process. Right. So okay. I'd rather just raise the cautious point at this stage. Yeah. That was a long cautious point, but okay, point mm. noted. Uh, so I think what we can do is uh, we, we, we will find another episode where we will uh, break this down a little bit more. Yeah. So, so that wraps up with the, the part on uh, assessment and the future of it. Uh, so let's move on to my favourite part of, of the podcast is where we really talk about uh, something or share something that inspired us over the week. Uh, do you want to go first? Well, um, when you say inspired me over the week, the, the thing that's kind of inspired me this week is how generous and kind people have been to me this week. Um, I'll start with yourself who helped me to get my driving license in Singapore. Um, and I coming back to England, you know, I mentioned about my arthritis. Um, yeah. uh, I go to the gym daily now because it's, it, 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 it's, uh, it keeps me fair. I, I do advocate um, the, the use of, going to the gym and doing regular exercise, but the steam room is also open. And I was in the steam room this week and um, somebody come in and normally I would not speak to people in steam room, but I, I took a risk and I said to, I said something to this person about making the, um, the steam a bit hotter, got chatting to him. And guess what? This was a person who knows a lot about arthritis. And this person said, Oh, email me i'll send you some information about some herbal treatments and i've never met this person before and i thought there's still a lot of kindness going on so um we talked about values last week and i do think that you know th this kindness thing is something that should be a core value in uh, in our curriculum recognizing that not everybody's going to do it but i thought i'd bring that one up again because I, I feel quite strongly about that okay that's a good one Glad you 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 were inspired by that. Uh, uh mine is really uh something that we talked about the last time. Uh, when we you know we spoke about Daniel Willingham's book on why don't students like school, so mm -hmm. uh, I decided to revisit it. Uh, and you know it, it suddenly occurred to me why I wanted to revisit it because I just couldn't put my finger on it, and I then realized that he actually is a little bit of a critique. Uh, of this idea of learning styles. Uh, and, and, and I thought, okay, this, this is interesting. So while he tries to go around uh, debunking the myth of learning styles, uh, what he then does is he provides really uh, good ideas, uh, you know, cognitive science into, into nine principles of learning. Uh, and what was interesting for me was these principles hold under a wide range of experimental conditions which are then very relevant to the work of what teachers do. Uh, and it is, I think, a simple enough book for us to read to apply some of these ideas that he has uh, that I would say really comes from an evidence-based model. So you have read the book then. Um, any thoughts on what, uh, what Willingham has said in his book? 
Uh, well, I've read all of Wodigan's work and a lot of my own work, The Core Principles of Learning, which um, I put in my last two books, as you know, and we applied them in Singapore, are, uh, in a sense, is very supportive. And I use uh, Willingham's work as a key uh, anchor point. He's absolutely spot on. And I think maybe next... Um, not next week we're booked up but uh in a couple of pods time let's look at william's work unpack it because what he's saying now is that an l of a lot i remember mccockney so i apologize for dropping the h for viewers out there uh, a, a hell of a lot of stuff that is taught to young teachers perhaps doesn't have any practical utility I'm not <laughs> And that's what Willingham says in his in a recent article. So let's look at what he's saying and let's look at the implications of that. And let's look at what that means for professional development of teachers, because it is massive. It's a biggie. So that's a podcast we will do in the next month. All being well. Right. OK. So, yeah, that's something that we uh, that I look forward to. And again, uh, I know I've said this many times. Hopefully one day we will be able to get him on our podcast and then we can uh, really pick his brain a little bit. Okay, so thanks for sharing that then. So that really brings us to the end of today's episode. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed it. Now, before we end off with our quotes of the week, I would just like to remind uh, everyone who is listening, if you have been inspired by what we have been talking about or you have just found us mildly interesting uh, and uh, humorous uh, and you would like for someone else to benefit from listening to us, then we would really like for you to please share the link to the episode uh, and get people to, you know, really subscribe and listen so that we can continue to churn out more content for you. So if you have some feedback for us, as usual, please drop us an email at evidencebasedcreativeteaching at gmail.com or if you have people who would like to be on the podcast or you would like to recommend someone to be on the podcast, please also write to us at that email address. I will put that email address in the show notes so that you can find it easily. So we have come to the end of today's episode. And before I go, Dennis, what's your quote for the week? Well, given that we're talking about assessment, I was looking for one and um, Carol Tomlinson, who um, is a pretty good writer in the field. So I would say um, read some of Carol Tomlinson's work. You'll find it very practically useful. Yeah. Um, and what Carol said is assessment is today's means of modifying tomorrow's instruction. And that reinforces the point that I made of assessment and learning and teaching all if you like you can put the three together that by doing good assessment it helps us to make future instruction better so that's my quote um you have already said that our um people can contact us yes please do and please not just contact us but challenge us um you may agree with everything we say and if you do please come on and say hey you're doing a great job um, but there may be things that you disagree with. By all means, we are here to enhance teacher expertise globally. And we are not in a paradigm. We're not behaviorists, constructivists. What we want to see is quality teaching so students learn better. So maybe we will improve the human condition in some way. Now, that's a philosophical point. And that's it for me. So um, thank you. And um, we will continue with the uh, conversation, Mark. 
Right. Okay. So thanks for that. Uh, my quote is uh, nothing to do with assessment, just something that I thought was quite interesting. Uh, and the quote is, motivation is what gets you started. Habit is what keeps you going. Uh, by somebody by the name of Jean, Jim Ruin, uh, I thought was quite a uh, uh, positive uh, quote. Uh, I hope you like that one then. Yeah, well, John Rowan has lots of good quotes. He's a motivational speaker. And yeah, he, he has a good understanding of the human condition. Nice. Okay, so that wraps up today's episode. Thank you for joining us. Take care, everyone. Stay safe and keep learning. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.